Hello and welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We're a church in Newmarket, Ontario, Canada that exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Thanks for joining us today. Lord, that indeed is the true cry of your people this morning. God, hallelujah, Christ is risen from the grave. And God, we await that day where we will be called into your open arms and declare that for all of eternity, that by the resurrection, by the defeat of death on the cross, Lord, we've found life. And so, God, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for this future glory and hope that we await. And we pray, Lord, that very relevantly it would change our life today, God, that as we open up your word and and hear your truth, God, and see your faithfulness to your people, God, would you change our lives today? You have such a word for us by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning. And so, Lord, I pray that you would find here your people focused and attentive to all that you want to do in our lives. God, we love you. We praise you. And we do this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So you grab your seat, you can take your copy of God's Word and open it up to Genesis 39. We're going to be in the last few verses of Genesis 39 and carry our way through to the end of Genesis chapter 40 this morning. And as you're opening there, I want to ask you if you remember uh, a, a really real icon of our culture. His name's Bob Ross. And put your hands up if you guys remember or have seen videos of Bob Ross. Okay, well, some of you guys didn't put your hands up. And either you're not participating or you're going to be very confused by what I'm about to say. But Bob Ross was real an, an icon because he made something that's kind of hard to make famous, famous. He made painting famous. And as someone who has no ability in art, I have a hatred for painting. And yet, I loved Bob Ross. Because when you watched Bob Ross paint on the television, there was something really magical that happened. He would, he would put these blobs on the screen, and in and of themselves, these blobs were just ugly little splotches of paint. And I'm not a very good artist, but I could put the kind of blobs of paint on a canvas that Bob Ross would begin his canvas with. But then with, it was like magic, with a few strokes of his brush, All of a sudden, out of nowhere, this ugly little blob of paint would become what Bob Ross would call a happy little tree, or a happy little mistake, or a happy little mountain. And by the end of it, you saw that through these ugly little blobs of paint, he he created this beautiful work of art. And I bring up Bob Ross for you, one, because I love him and I would like to share the things that I love with you. But two, because I think what Bob Ross did in painting and what many artists even in this room do in painting and in art is illustrative of how God works in our life. What I want us to understand this morning from the life of Joseph in Genesis 39 and 40 is this, that the primary instrument God uses to accomplish his work in you And the primary instrument that God uses to accomplish his work through you is the instrument of suffering. It is the instrument of those times in life where you have to wait on God's promise and you cannot understand why the things that are happening in life are happening and yet you are called to a season of waiting. It's those times in life where because you're a Christian and you're seeking to live your life according to this word, 
and you're doing the very thing that Jesus called you to do, to take up your cross, this instrument of death. You're, you're called to this hard life, and you embrace it. And so you're called to these hardships, to these difficult actions, to this difficult life. It, it is in those times that God is working to accomplish his work in you and through you. In other words, you can say this, that the mission of God advances in your life primarily through suffering. Now those are, I think, very shocking and hard words for us to hear. But consider what Paul said in Romans 8, verses 16 and 17 for a moment. Let me read this for you. Paul said this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And we love that, don't we? We want to be children of God. We want to be those who are called the children of God. But Paul goes on and he says, If children, then heirs. And we love that too, don't we? Who doesn't love to be an heir of some great treasure? Wouldn't you love if all of a sudden someone came to you and said, Hey, you didn't know it, but you had an uncle who was filthy rich, and you are an heir to his possessions. You would say, this is great. Paul says we are heirs of God, but listen to these words. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, Paul says, provided we suffer. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In church, what Paul is saying is, is this, the path to glory is the path of suffering. Well, Peter talks about it too in, Peter, in 1 Peter 4.13. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's as though Peter says, hey, hey, beloved Christian, you remember that the reason why you're called a Christian is because you are a follower of Christ who said, you can't be my follower if you won't take up your cross. So don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes, Peter says, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What Peter is saying is this. If what we just saying is true, you want to rejoice in that day where Jesus' arms are wide open to you and you get to proclaim, hallelujah, Christ has risen from the grave. If you long for that day, well, you look through a path of suffering to get there. And you know, even as I say these words, I am so aware of how this message grates against the culture that we live in and often as Christians we are marinated in. See, the problem is that we love comfort. Isn't everything in our world these days, it's about comfort. It's about ease. Like, I, our grandparents would, or maybe great-grandparents, and our grandparents struggled to get there, but our grandparents and great-grandparents could not fathom how easy life has become. They would remember a day where you actually had to get up off the couch to change the channel on TV, where you actually had to get out of the car and go into the restaurant in order for that food to be given to you. See, we live in an age of comfort, and while the call of the culture is comfort, the call of Christianity is suffering. Christ says to us, take up your cross and follow me. And yet we live in a 
day and age where what is constantly preached to us is that your joy is found in a new car and a bigger mortgage. See, the call of Christ, it directly contradicts the call of culture. What we have here is really two paths of living, two different paths we can walk on in our life. One is the path of suffering that leads to glory, and the other is the path of comfort that leads to destruction. And everything I want to do for us this morning is to plead with us, and, and, and I'm pleading with my own soul as well that, that we would live on the path of suffering. I want to uh, appeal to you and to compel you to come and walk on the path of suffering, to see the glory that awaits you there. I want to encourage you to embrace those times in life where things don't go as planned. I want to encourage you that when your life isn't going the way that you thought it should, when you're waiting on the promises of God to be accomplished in your life, I want to encourage you to stay in that moment, to stay in that suffering. I want to encourage you to take up the hard calls of Christianity, the difficult sacrifices that Christ calls you to make as a follower of him, and to do that with great rejoicing because of the glory that it leads to. Let's read the story of Joseph together, and then let's consider the glory of suffering for a moment this morning. In, in Genesis 39, verse 21, I'm going to start here, and I'm going to read to the end of Genesis 40. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. One night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We've had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches, and as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift your head, and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. And there were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, 
but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Church, I want us to learn from Joseph's suffering this morning about our suffering. And I want you to see this first, that suffering fills me with grace. Suffering fills me with grace. Now, as we have walked with Joseph up until this point of the story, I'm sure that you would agree with me that if Joseph were to write his own story, surely he would not write it like this. Remember that Joseph was promised by God through a a, a pair of dreams of his own that one day his brothers, and, and in fact his whole family, would bow before him and that the covenant blessings, the earthly covenant blessings that God had promised to his people would flow through Joseph. Now at that point in Joseph's story, I, I'm sure you can imagine how Joseph felt. Oh man, life's going to be pretty good for me. Joseph had no indication of the future suffering that he would endure, and yet as he shared that vision with his brothers, his brothers took him aside, left him for dead, sold him to slavery. And if you thought that slavery was bad enough, well, in slavery, Joseph was wrongly accused of rape and then sent to prison. And here we find Joseph in prison, and, and yet, even though Joseph wouldn't write his story this way. One of the astounding things is what we read in verse 21, that despite the fact that Joseph keeps getting brought deeper and deeper into his suffering, we read in verse 21 that the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph, and we are told the Lord was showing him steadfast love and giving him favor. He was pouring his grace out on Joseph so that Joseph, in the eyes of the prisoner, or the the, the captain of the prison, was favored. And isn't it interesting that it's in the place of Joseph's deepest blessing that he is filled with God's grace? And church, how instructive is this for us? Do you know that God loves you to such a degree that he is willing to lower you down into the well of suffering, down into the well of waiting, down into the well of hardship, in order that there you might draw deeply from the fountain of his grace. This is the love of God for his children. God is like a parent who, with a young child who is learning to walk, will back a few steps away from that child and allow that child to struggle, doing something that that they cannot do themselves, but, but something that they must do, something that's necessary for them to do in order to learn how to walk. The wise parent is willing to allow their children to endure a little supervised suffering in order that that the work that they want to be accomplished in their life is accomplished. And, And if a wise parent is able to do that, how much more is a sovereign, good, and wise God able to do that in your life? See, God is using the suffering in your life. He's using the waiting in your life. He's using the hardships in your life in order to fill you with his steadfast love and to fill you with his favor. That's why I love, we, we read Psalm 23 in the uh, call to worship of our service this morning, and, and we love that, 
that chapter, and yet there are some really odd words there. David says about this shepherd, he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, at that moment in Psalm 23, if we understand shepherding, we should, we should hit the brakes. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The cultural equivalent of that is your child looking to you and saying, Dad, your belt, the wooden spoon, the discipline that you give to me, oh, gracious Father, it comforts me. Does anyone's kids do that? Because if, if your kids do that, I would love for you to maybe do a seminar on parenting for us. That's not how it works. And the, the, the rod and the staff of a shepherd were, were the very things that were used even at times to break the limbs of a sheep in order that that sheep might go the right way. They were used to hook the sheep off the wrong path onto the right path. And David looks and he says, even though your rod and your staff at times they bring me pain, at times it's your, your discipline that hurts me, it brings me great comfort because I know when I'm in the presence of your rod and staff, I am on the right path. And then isn't it interesting that a verse later he says, uh, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Church, this is instructive for us. The place of God's blessing, the place where your cup will overflow, where you are so filled with God's grace that you are like a sponge that when squished by trial and suffering and waiting and hardship, God's grace pours out, it's in suffering. And so we see as, as Joseph endures this trial, he handles it so well because God has brought him to a place where he's filling him with his steadfast love, filling him with his favor. That's why Joseph is able to endure this trial as though nothing's going on. I want you to consider the context here for a moment. In Genesis 41, verse 48, we're going to be told that Joseph is 30 by the time he starts serving Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Genesis 37, we were told that Joseph was 17 when he was sold into slavery. So we can do the math here. Between the time that Joseph was promised by God that his brothers would bow before him, that it would be through him that the covenant blessings of God would come, between that time and the time that, that Joseph was delivered out of prison, it was 13 years. And we're told that the baker in Genesis 41, it took him two years to remember Joseph. That means that between slavery and imprisonment, Joseph had spent 11 years. And as he looked for the promise of God being fulfilled in his life, things had only gone backwards. So God had said one thing, and then the complete opposite happened. And yet Joseph is enduring this trial, and as we read this, there's no complaining. Not once is he, is he like, God, what's going on here? Listen, how quickly are we to do that in suffering? Like for me, it's like the day of suffering. The first day that I have a cold, I'm on my knees. I'm like, God, why are you doing this to me? That's an application I think that hits strongly with the men and the man cold. And yet here's Joseph for 11 years. There's no complaining. We just read through the life of Jacob. And what did Jacob do? When suffering hit Jacob, he, he, like, he tried to weasel his way out of it. Jacob was like a pro wrestler. And so all that he ever did was try to wrestle his way out of suffering. And yet here is Joseph accepting, accepting his lot, accepting his suffering. And, and instead of focusing on himself, he's seeking to serve God to his glory. So that even in the prison, we're going to read in chapter 40, he, he's serving others in the prison. He doesn't care about himself. He's just trying to glorify God in this prison. And my question is, how? How do you endure such uh, hopeless, seemingly hopeless waiting? How do you endure such a significant trial where it's like there's no light? 
There's no way out. And you just get keep, keep getting dragged deeper and deeper and deeper away from what you thought God promised. Well, I believe it's this. I, I believe truly that Joseph, he looks back. He looks back on the way that God had interacted with his people. And you know what Joseph could discern if he were a faithful student of the redemptive story that God was writing? Joseph could discern that God always used the suffering of his children to accomplish his work in them. Joseph could look back to Abraham and remember that it was many years between the time that that God had promised Abraham that he would have a child and that that child was delivered. And there would be many years of waiting and suffering in which Abraham, his life would be completely transformed In those years, God would fill Abraham full of grace so that when God appeared to Abraham and said, sacrifice your one and only son on Mount Moriah for me, Abraham would hear that call and say, yes, yes, God. And if Abraham was to be so filled with grace that he was able to uh, hear a hard, difficult call like that, God would have to bring Abraham through years of suffering. Joseph could look to Jacob and see Jacob's transformation and see that Jacob's life was much like Joseph's. It was trial after trial after trial in which Jacob failed. After, it was failure after failure after failure for Jacob. And yet what, what Joseph could see in Jacob's life is that it was through his suffering that Jacob was eventually transformed. That it's the suffering that God brings his people through that fills them with the grace that they need to do the work that he wants them to accomplish. Joseph looked at his heritage, and he was confident. He was confident that God never wastes suffering. He was confident that all the suffering that God's people had endured up until this point was a necessary suffering. That when God puts his people into the furnace, it's as one pastor says, his hands are on the thermostat and his eyes are on the clock. And he does not leave his people in the furnace longer than they need. He leaves them in there for a purpose in order that they might be purified like pure metal. And Joseph was convinced that if he was in suffering, that God was using it for a purpose in his life. My question for you this morning is this. Are you confident? Are you confident that the difficult things that God has called you to do in this season of life that the difficult trials and suffering that you have walked through and are walking through right now, that the season of waiting that you are in, are, are you confident that God is purposefully having you in this season? Are you confident that God is purposefully using your suffering to accomplish his work? See, the reality is that if we're not confident that God will use the hard things that we endure in life and the hard things that we do for his glory, if we're not confident that he will use those things, then we will never do hard things for him. We'll hear the hard calls that Christ makes to his followers, and we'll say, why would I ever do that? It's a little like this. It's a little like, like, like the, what we're talking about is the spiritual equivalent of working out here physically, isn't it? Have you guys ever met someone who, who it's like they're, like they're a runner and they're just like, I love running. There's nothing I love more than running and being out of breath. And don't you kind of look at that person and say, you are a liar. There's no one who loves running. And the way that you know that is because you've seen a lot of people running in your life, haven't you? 
You've never seen someone running with a smile on their face. Whenever you've seen people running, don't they look, they look like they're dying. They look like they hate it. Same with like weightlifting. You've never seen a person deadlift with a smile on their face. Instead, it looked like they hate it. They look like their spine's going to pop out of their back. No one likes lifting heavy weights. But what you do like and what you've deceived yourself to think is, is you like the outcome. When you finish that run, the endorphins are, are running through your brain and your body feels good and you start losing weight. And what, what you're willing to do is embrace the hardship of working out in order to uh, embrace the outcome of working out. And so it is with our spiritual life. If, if you don't look at this faithful God and see that when he calls you to a difficult thing that you feel like you cannot do, when he puts you in a difficult season that you feel like you cannot endure, if you don't look to him and have a confidence that he's doing that purposefully, you will never be able to endure it. And the reality is that so many of us, we miss out on God's blessing because we just have no confidence that God will do what he says he'll do. And the reason why Joseph is in prison and drawing deeply from the wells of God's grace, and sensing God's presence, and filled with God's steadfast love, is because he has a confidence that God is working through this. And so church, let me ask you, are you confident that God is purposefully using your suffering? And are you willing to do hard things because you know that God will use that and bless you in the midst of that? Well, what are are some hard things? If we're really confident that God uses the hard things that we do for his glory, what are some hard things that we'll do? Well, the first that I can maybe point your attention to is that we'll sacrificially give. Isn't it something, isn't isn't it interesting that what the New Testament calls us to is sacrificial giving? What does that mean? It's like giving to the point that it hurts. It's not comfortable giving. Comfortable giving would be like, what can you give that you don't notice? What can you kind of scrape off the top that, that won't really hinder you too much. What the New Testament calls for is sacrificial giving. It's like this giving that, that is, is so, it hurts you so much that you get to the point where you're like, man, I'm really going to have to depend on God here. And God in that moment where, where you participate in sacrificial giving like that is glorified because here you are at a point where you're like, God, I'm, I'm dependent on you. I'm going to have to trust in you for this. I'm going to have to be near you. And it's in this place that we're told is blessed is the cheerful giver. Well, what about, what about meaningful relationship? Let's be honest. If we are going to do relationships in this church the way that the Bible calls us to, it is going to be incredibly difficult. There are many incredibly difficult things about entering into the type of community that God is calling us to be as a church. You enter into a messy community, and you enter into this community of of sinners, and you have to pursue something called vulnerability. And it's incredibly hard sometimes to sit in a room of people that sometimes you don't even really know them all that well, and yet you're, you're called to vulnerability. You're called to pour out your life with these people, to live your life with these people. At times, to maybe confess things that you're embarrassed about. And you're called even to walk alongside people that if it weren't for the unity that you have in Jesus Christ, if it weren't for the fact that they're in this church, you would never hang out with them. You would never call them your friend. Maybe your personalities, you know, it's not the, the, the type of friend that you would make naturally. And yet God has called you to minister to this person. And we can agree that relationship, the way that God has called us to do it, is incredibly difficult. 
And yet we press into it because we believe that is the place of blessing. We believe we have confidence that God is calling us to this in order that we might be blessed, in order that we might be filled with his grace. Really, the question is this. Do you believe that Jesus' words are true when he said that you cannot follow me if you are not willing to take up your cross? If you're not willing to take up this instrument of death, if you are not the symbol of suffering, it's the symbol of suffering in our days, but day, day and age, but you can imagine how it was a symbol of suffering in the Roman culture, the cross. Take up your cross. Be willing to suffer in order that you might be filled with grace. That's the first thing that suffering does for us. It fills us with grace. But I want you to notice what else happens in Joseph's life. We, we also notice that suffering focuses him on the goal. And I want you to see this in this passage. Suffering focuses me on the goal. Now, Joseph, as he got into prison, doesn't he, he kind of has every reason just to sit back and do nothing. He's in prison. That's kind of the point of prison, isn't it? Like, you don't get to do anything for a few years. And yet what Joseph does is instead of sitting back and doing nothing, he gets right to work. He starts serving other people. So he gains favor with the captain of the guard. And now we're told that he has all these prisoners that are in his guard. And it just so happens that in chapter 40, verse 1, two of the most influential people in all the land of Egypt happen to be put in Joseph's charge so that Joseph now has influence in their life. Joseph gets into prison, and he gets right to the work of serving the people in prison. And then in Genesis 40, verse 1, we read outside of the prison, there's some turmoil going on. We're told of this chief baker and of this chief cupbearer who committed offense against the king of Egypt. Now, we're not told what the offense is. We could imagine, as we understand the roles, what it is. The, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker were, were pretty much like the bosses of their departments in the kingdom. And the chief baker would be in charge of the team who would make all of the food for the king. And the chief cupbearer had a really interesting role. The chief cupbearer was the one who would taste the food to see if it was poisonous and would kill them. And so you can imagine if your job was the chief cupbearer, you probably wouldn't just be blindly taste testing all this food. If they needed a role, if, if that was like a job in the kingdom, people were trying to assassinate the king by feeding them poisonous food, you'd probably want to know every little detail that goes into making that food. And so the, ch the chief cupbearer had an important and really significant and intrusive role in the kingdom and that he would be a, almost like an overseer of the whole process of the food being made, of the food being transported, of the food being baked and then delivered to Pharaoh to ensure before he ate it before Pharaoh or drank it before Pharaoh that it had no poison in it. And so likely what happened is the chief baker was, was really in Cahoots trying to maybe assassinate the king. And because this slipped the chief cupbearer's attention and almost made it to Pharaoh, well, the Pharaoh sa said, you're both going to jail. Yet we're not told that, but here's what we do know, that, that in a moment, Joseph finds himself in the presence of two of the most influential people in all of Egypt. And we're told in verse 4 that the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them. And, and these important words, we're told, he attended them. He attended them. All of these men are prisoners. And yet jo Joseph, he takes the posture of a servant. He takes the posture of, a, a, of someone who would serve these other 
prisoners. I don't know what you would do if you were in jail. I've seen a lot of TV shows about jail, and often what these people in prison do is, is they kind of like say, hey, I don't deserve to be here, right? That's like the first thing you do. You say, hey, I, I didn't do it. And when you get a new prisoner, you tell them what they, that you didn't do it, and you can plead your story to them. And yet Joseph's not here pleading his own case. Joseph is here serving other people. And so we see this in verse 5 and 6, really the pinnacle of Joseph serving is that when these men have a dream, did you notice in verse 6, it was Joseph who came to them in the morning. Joseph came to them, and, and, and he's looking for ways to serve these people. And he sees that they are downcast, and, and he asks them why they are downcast, and he's seeking to serve them in the most significant way. Now, I think it's really important for us that Joseph, in the depth of his suffering, is serving God. Because it is in the depth of Joseph's suffering that the very thing he needs to do for God becomes clear to him. And this is another reality of suffering. Suffering focuses us on what God wants us to be after. Suffering brings clarity into our life of the things that we are to do for God. That's part of the reason why some of these verses that we have read this morning say that we can rejoice in suffering because it's suffering that shows us what is important and what's a waste of time. Isn't this true? Haven't you ever attended a funeral? Really one of the deepest moments of suffering where we mourn the death of a loved one. And you walk out of that funeral with a, a clarity of life, don't you? Where you start to think about the things in your life and you start to realize, hey, some of these things that I'm really passionate about right now, that, that I'm spending a lot of time on, they, they just do not matter in the grand scheme of things. And you start to realize that it's the people that you're around that are important. That, that the greatest marker that you can leave, the greatest influence and significance that you can have is by pouring into other people. And it's through this funeral, this immense moment of suffering in your life, that you are given great clarity on what is important. That's true of all suffering, isn't it? Suffering at times, it reveals the things that, that maybe we had clung too closely to. We're called to a season of waiting in life where we just don't know what God's doing in our midst. Sometimes it reveals the, the idols that have been in our life, and it shows us what we should be doing. And this is the reality of suffering, is, is that suffering focuses us on what God wants us to be focused on. See, I believe that one of the greatest enemies of the church today is distraction. I love what one pastor calls it. He, he says that the greatest enemy are weapons of mass distraction. And our problem is not so much that we don't know what to do. Our problem is just that we are, aren't focused on the very thing we should be doing. We're distracted by all these other things. We're distracted by the rat race. We're distracted by the materialism, by wanting bigger and better things and bigger and better homes. We're distracted by the race for popularity, of wanting to be the people on the street who everybody loves and wanting, wanting to be the person who everyone accepts. We're distracted by promotions, by the kids' activities. There are all sorts of things that, though they're not bad things in and of themselves, they distract us from the main goal. And the reason why suffering is something that we can rejoice in is, is because God will use it to clarify to you what is important. Joseph's suffering focuses him on what is important, and that's to serve these two people who are imprisoned with him. 
Now we get a sense of what, the goal, what, what God's goal for us and for Joseph is in verse 8. After these men have these troubling dreams, we're told in verse 8 that Joseph goes to them and he says at the end of verse 8, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. And, and we're told exactly what Joseph's about to do. Joseph is about to, to share the revealed word of God to these men. Joseph will point these men to God's word. And, and as we read the story, we really understand that this is what Joseph's doing. Because the interpretation that Joseph has, you could not come to any other way than to just know that God told you that thing. So then in verse 9 and 11, we read of the cupbearer's dream. And he tells us, in, in my dream, there is a vine before me. And on the vine, there were three branches. And as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup on, in Pharaoh's hand. Now, if you were just to read this dream, you could not interpret what it means. In fact, most dreams are like that, aren't they? When you and I dream, we wake up in the morning, and maybe we had a dream. We're like riding over Niagara Falls on an, or on an orange with Abraham Lincoln or something like that. That's kind of the dreams I have. And I don't wake up and say, what was the meaning of the orange? Was that like now I'm going to have a season of vitality in my life or something? I, I don't, most dreams are just completely random. And in many ways, this dream is completely random. But then in verse 12, Joseph says to him, this is, inter this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. And I, I don't think that there is anywhere in Scripture that could support that, illustrate, that, that uh, interpretation of this dream apart from Joseph having, like he said, had that revealed to him by God. And Joseph prophesies in verse 13. Again, this is given to him by God. It's God's revealed word given to Joseph that Joseph now speaks into the cupbearer's life, that he's going to be restored to his office. Now, in verses 16 to 19, he does the same thing with the baker. See, the chief baker, he's kind of a, a ratty guy, isn't he? In verse 16, he, he's not willing to share his dream until he sees that the cupbearer's dream is favorable. And then so he shares his dream. And even though his dream has a negative interpretation, even though his dream ends with him being hung on a tree and the birds eating of his flesh, it ends in his death, Joseph is still willing to share God's word with this man. And I don't think it's accidental that this is the work that jo Joseph is focused on in his deepest suffering because I truly believe that this is the work that God is calling you and me to. See, the, the thing that suffering often focuses us to is that our life is you, you were created to pour into other people. Do you know that? It's so important to hear again because we live in a culture that says your greatest joy is pouring yourself, pouring yourself, pouring yourself. We're so individualistic. We think the more we focus on ourselves, the more happier we will be. And, and I need you to know that you were created by the God of this world. You were created to pour into other people. That's why unbelievers, they catch on to this. If you read self-help, secular self-help, you will find this over and over and over again, that the thing you need to do is serve other people, serve other people, serve other people. Well, why is that? Why is that that the secular uh, world is catching on to this? It's because that's how God created you to be. And if you live your life pouring yourself out for other people, you will find joy because you weren't made just to focus on yourself. And we live in this age that's constantly just saying, focus on yourself, focus on yourself, focus on yourself. That's where your greatest joy is. And it's not until you die to yourself and take up the interest of other people 
that you truly understand joy and satisfaction. This is a work that God needs to do in our heart, and it's a work that God often does in suffering. He tears us away from the love of self, and he shows us that the most important thing that we can do is pour into other people, is to influence them. And, and God is showing us here the way that we serve other people truly is by pointing them to God. Church, I want you to see this, and so I'm going to ask you to do something I don't often ask you to do. I want you to turn your Bibles to Colossians 1, okay? Can you turn your Bible to Colossians 1? Right now, there should be a lot of pages flipping. Maybe you can turn on the sound of your phone so we hear it scrolling and know that you're doing something. Colossians 1. Look how this fleshes itself out in the life of Paul in Colossians 1, verse 24. Paul gives us an insight here into his ministry, and it's this is like a, a documentary on Paul where like you shudder as you consider what ministry is like for him. Colossians 1 verse 24. Paul says this. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now hit the pause button because those words are so countercultural to us, and God is not going to work in our midst until they become more comfortable in our church. Can you replace Paul's pronoun here with your name? Can you truly say these words of verse 24, that you rejoice, that Miles rejoices in his sufferings for the sake of other people in this church? That, that, that you are willing to take on much suffering, much trial, much pain for the sake of Christ's body? That you're willing to sacrifice yourself for the church? That's what Paul says. He, sa he says, I'm, I'm afflicted. I'm suffering for the church. In verse 25, he says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for, to you. But look at this in verse 25. To make the word of God fully known. Why is Paul suffering? Because in his ministry to the church, he is spending all of his time, all of his talents, all of his treasures to make the word of God known. He's willing to sacrifice himself to look at his brother and sister in Christ and to look at unbelievers and say, you need to know God's word. You need to know God's revealed will. And he says of this word, it's the mystery in verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed, now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is in Christ in you, the hope of glory. But look at verse 28 with me, and this is going to come up on the screen if you're not following along with us. In verse 28, Paul says these words, he says, Him we proclaim warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is what Paul is willing to suffer for, for this goal, in order that he, everybody that he knows may be presented mature in Christ. Paul's got a, a, kind of a picture in his mind. It's an eschatological picture, and we sang about it this morning. Remember, we were singing about the day that, that we will find Jesus and we'll find him with open arms. And Paul thinks about that day, but he also thinks about that day for everybody else that he knows. See, the reality of, of every person in this room is that one day, the person that is sitting beside you, in front of you, behind you, myself included, one day we will all stand before the Lord. 
It will be the most important day in all of our eternity. And I wonder if you've ever pictured the reality that everybody that you know, everybody that you speak to on a day-to-day basis, everybody that you have influence over in this life is going to stand before the Lord one day. I wonder if you could picture them on that day. Like maybe you're standing and you're looking from afar. And this person in your family, they, they stand in front of the presence of God. I wonder what it would be like if they could make eye contact with you in that moment. How would you feel in that moment? Would you feel like, oh man, there are some things I wish I said to that person to prepare them for this day. Paul thinks about that moment. And he lives his life in order so that on that day, all these people that he loves would stand there presented before God, mature in Christ. Paul's even willing to say this in verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul is willing to suffer for that day for other people, and he's given his life to pouring into other people in order that they might be presented mature on that day. Listen, as the Holy Spirit works in you right now, as the Holy Spirit drives this to your heart, do you feel that anything else is important in this life? Who cares what house you live in? Who cares what car you drive? Who cares what activity your your kids do if they will just be presented mature on that day? Parents, your children will not look to you and say, thank you for having me in rep hockey on that day. They will look to you and say, thank you for proclaiming Christ to me on that day. Church, your brother and sister on that day will not say, hey, thank you for a great friendship where we shared fruit punch and ate cookies in the church basement. They will say, thank you for walking beside me in life and keeping me accountable. Thank you for being willing to forgive me of my sin and embrace me when I was vulnerable and weak. Doesn't this clarify everything in our life that everybody that we interact with will one day stand before the Lord? Church, what are you doing to influence them, to present them mature on that day? Would you flip back a few pages with me? Probably three pages to Philippians 1. To Philippians 1. I want you to see this fleshed out again in Paul's life. The end of Paul's life in Philippians, he, like Joseph, is in jail. And something really, it should be like really startling to us. It's kind of morbid. Paul is doing a mathematical equation of whether it's better to live or better to die. Paul says in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And in verses 22 and 23, he's kind of, you can see like the inner turmoil because he's going back and forth between these things. In verse 22, he says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. He says there's work to do. And yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Verse 23 says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. Paul is, the, I would say, arguably the holiest man that ever lived apart from Jesus Christ. You could understand that Paul's desire is to be with Jesus Christ. And he says, if I die, I get to be in the presence of God. But look what he says in verse 24, to, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. On your account. I I, got to stay in this prison. I got to endure in this suffering. Because if I'm here, I can influence you to godliness. He says in verse 25, 
convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all, you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul sees he cannot leave this earth because there are people that he is influencing on this earth. And if he leaves their life, he's gonna, they're going to lose his influence. And they're going to lose the potential of progressing in the faith and having a joy in the faith that when Jesus returns will bring great glory to God. Well, church, look at verse 29 of Philippians 1. Maybe you say, well, this is Paul's ministry, but look what it says in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict, that conflict we just read about, that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul says this, that the call to Christianity is a call to believing and suffering. Listen, the North American church, we get the believing down really well, don't we? We do the altar calls really well. We proclaim Jesus Christ as the Savior really well. You know what we don't do, though, very well? We don't call people to the cross. We don't call people to the life of suffering. And I wonder if, if maybe the Holy Spirit is convicting you right now that, that you've been willing to take the belief part of Christianity, but you've been unwilling to take the suffering part of Christianity. And I wonder what would change in life if you were to embrace the suffering in order that God might accomplish his work through you. You know, very practically, some of the ways that this fleshes out in your life is, is one on, I mean, there are many ways this can flesh out, but one is in the way that you serve the church. There are a number of people in kids' ministry right now that are suffering in there for the sake of the gospel. And we laugh, but isn't it true? Like, I mean, I'm sure that there's, although I did hear a few weeks ago that a kid punched another kid, so some things do get very, pretty violent in there. If you're new here, that does not often happen. You know how kids are. But it is suffering, isn't it? Like, those people, they want to be in here, they don't want to spend their Sunday morning, like, especially some busy moms are in there who have spent a whole week with kids, and they say, hey, let's go to church and spend some time with, like, 25 kids now. And it's suffering. Like, they're sacrificing themselves in order, though, something that they would not be willing to do if this outcome weren't true, in order that those kids might know Jesus Christ, in order that you might sit here and hear God's word proclaimed, and God might do a transformative work in you. And here are these people who are willing to take up the call to suffering in order that they might serve God's glory, in order that the name of God might be glorified. And what, honestly, one of the really practical applications for men and women from this message is you need to serve in kids' ministry. And you need to take up the call to suffering, to hardship. It's not easy for anyone. There's no one in there who's going in there with a smile on their face saying, this is going to be the best moment of my week. And yet they go in there with the joy of knowing that they're doing something of eternal value, serving the Lord. And some of you, really practically, that needs to be the call. You need to send an email to the office this week and say, hey, I, I, I want to serve in kids. I want to suffer. Let's do this together. Well, what about evangelism? Isn't that in many ways a call to suffering? It's very rare in your life that you get like this like t-ball opportunity to evangelize someone. Often it's through an awkward conversation. Often it's through rejection or through uh, at least the fear of rejection that you share the gospel with people, and you're called to suffering in order that God might accomplish his goal through your life. Church, are you willing to embrace not only the call to believe, but the call to suffer? Well, if you are, I want you to see this third and final point, that suffering forms me for glory. I think what's, as we go back to Genesis 39 and 40, something really significant is happening here at the end. 
It's very interesting that one of the things that both of these dreams share in common is that they happen on the third day, and the prophecy is fulfilled in verse 20 on the third day. And the third day is going to become very significant in, in Scripture. As the divine author writes the redemptive story from Genesis to Revelation, as you read through the Bible from cover to cover, you will find that this third-day theology develops and develops in Scripture. And I don't believe that Moses at this moment has a—in fact, I know he doesn't have a fully fleshed-out, fully uh, orb theology of, of what's going to happen on the third day and how it's going to be significant. But I truly do believe that Moses is starting to put the pieces of the puzzle together to say that God really cares about the third day. You'll remember that in Genesis 1, God created the world in six days, but those were divided into two units of threes. And you'll remember that when Abraham went up Mount Moriah, he was traveling up the mountain, and it was on the third day that he arrived at the top and made the sacrifice of his son. And so surely here, as Moses comes to Joseph, and we read this third day, uh, we, our interpretation of these dreams, Moses has in his mind that something significant is happening here. When Moses meets with God in Exodus 19 on the mountain, he spends two days up on the mountain, and then we're told in Exodus 19 that it was on the third day that God came down with Moses. He met his people in thunder and lightning and clouds, and there were the sounds of loud trumpets coming out of this cloud, and there God declared for his people, God coming down from the heaven of Mount Sinai to earth to declare his law to his people. Moses is is beginning to understand, as the divine author inspires him to write the Torah, that the third day is significant. Well, this would all culminate throughout the Old Testament until a man from Nazareth, Nazareth would come and declare to his disciples that he would die and on the third day be raised. And it's interesting that this greater Joseph the one whom Joseph's life points to, Jesus, he would have a third day of his own. And during those days, as he hung on the cross, just like Joseph, Jesus would have two criminals by his side. And just like Joseph, one of those criminals would be given a favorable end. One of those criminals would believe in Jesus and find redemption through the suffering of Jesus. Just like the cupbearer would be would be shown his fate, that he would be redeemed from this prison and restored to his position. So this criminal looks to Jesus and finds that in the suffering of Jesus, he can be given eternal life. I wonder if you're here this morning and you've never believed in Jesus Christ. I, I have this question for you. Uh, do you know that it's through the suffering of this man, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, that you can find eternal life? The same is true for you. Just as Joseph suffered in prison in order to give this interpretation to the cupper, so Jesus suffered on the cross in order that he may grant to you eternal life. And the only thing that you need to do is look to the cross, look to the resurrection, and say these words, I believe and I'm willing to embrace the suffering of the Christian life. To hear Christ's call and say, I will take up my cross to follow you because you took up your cross in order that I might follow you into eternity. See, salvation is offered to you today through the suffering of Jesus Christ. And when you believe, in that moment, you are promised redemption. But there's something significant that happens in Genesis 40 at the end, in verse 
23, they are sad words. That when the chief cupbearer leaves, Moses says, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And here Joseph would wait in prison for two more years. For two more years, he would wait for his day of redemption to come. In many ways, the greater Joseph, Jesus, he would die on the cross. He would give the death blow to our death and deliver us to redemption. And yet Jesus' day of glory awaits. Jesus is waiting to return and make all things new. This informs our suffering. We're suffering now, but we are not suffering to suffer. And the call of this message is not that you need to love suffering. The call of this message is that you need to look through suffering to what's on the other side of, of you because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. You look through suffering to glory. Isn't this what Paul says? This verse is going to come up on the screen in 2 Corinthians. I want to close with this. Is that there? Thumbs up? There you go. For this, here's what Paul says. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And you will look to the outcome there, the glory that is beyond all comparison, and you will look back and you'll say, it was light. That no matter the depths of suffering that I endured, it was nothing compared to what I will receive because I walked on the path of suffering that leads to glory. Church, would you stand with me? Let's pray together and respond in song and declare to God in the song that it is well because of all that he has accomplished. Father, we bow before you, God, and thank you that we can suffer with hope because our suffering is leading us to glory and that the suffering, hardship, and waiting that we endure now, it's a light momentary affliction in light of the reality, Lord, that there is coming a day where an eternal weight of glory will be revealed to us beyond all comparison. God, we may cry now, but God, we're promised a day where every tear will be wiped from our eye. We may endure sickness and famine now, but we are promised a day where sickness and death is defeated finally and forever, where we will be full for all of eternity in the presence of God, just like Joseph needed to endure suffering in order to be with you. God, we will spend all of eternity in your presence free from suffering. And so, God, I pray in this moment, through the power of your Holy Spirit working in us, would you free us from thinking that suffering is a burden to us? Lord, allow us to rejoice in it. Allow us to declare that because of what Jesus has done, God, we can say these words, it is well, no matter how bad it gets. And so, God, we respond to you now in this song, and we pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.